in a series in the book of Matthew called Matthew the King Jesus Gospel. I am uh, in chapter three. We're gonna be looking at the first half of chapter three today, second half next week. There's so much in here. Already in chapter one, we've seen Matthew's teaching, his theology on the sovereignty of God, the nature and the character of God. Matthew is laying out for us, before we get into the teaching of Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, Matthew's laying out for us the, the, the theology of God that Jesus himself had and would have passed down and taught Matthew. Matthew's giving us that theology in chapter 1. In chapter 2, in the stories of Herod and the Magi and the Christ child, we see humanity when it comes into confrontation with the kingdom of God. We see inherit what happens when the flesh and the sinful nature come into contact with or proximity to the kingdom of God and it's it's rebellion against that it's deciding to to insist on its own kingdom rule and we see in the magi the grace and mercy of God at work as they humble themselves under the lordship of God begin to worship this child, this infant king, and walk home a different way. We see in the Magi that when we come into contact with Jesus, with the kingdom of God, and we humble ourselves and yield our kingdom to his kingdom, God's grace intervenes, and then God calls us to go home a different way like the Magi did. And we see in Jesus in this child, we see God's design for humanity, God's vision for humanity under his rule on the earth. Jesus is representative humanity. He's actually our living, breathing example of how to live. This is why Matthew's gospel was the preeminent gospel in the first few hundred years of church history. When the church was under oppressive uh, Roman rulership, when the church was being persecuted, it looked to Matthew's gospel to understand not just what Jesus said, but how Jesus commanded us and exemplified for us to live. And so Matthew's gospel is really a gospel written for minorities in a hostile environment, which is why we're going through there. So Matthew 3, this is split up into two parts. In John the Baptist, we're going to see the law and the fire of God. And in Jesus, we're going to see the gospel. Matthew is not writing this book as an abstract paper, or he's not writing this as a, as a mechanical textbook. Matthew is giving us his theology, his worldview, his doctrine of God that he learned from Jesus. He's giving us that, his teaching on in chapter three on the law of God and the fire of God. But what happens when the grace of God and the gospel of God is lived out through the life of Jesus? Jesus is the living gospel and John is representative of all of the law. So let's just pick it up and um, head into it. Matthew chapter three. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, 
Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. I'm just going to stop there for this uh, little bit. So Matthew is giving us um, a picture in John of the law and the fire of God. John is the living, breathing, walking, in-person representation of the law. All of the Old Testament is summed up in John as a person. I love how Bruner puts it, John is the law of God in person, walking and breathing, full of doom and holiness. In John, we see the law in action, and it calls us, in John's life, it calls us to be set apart holy and refined by the fire of God. One thing that's really important for us to understand, and Matthew is laying this out, but actually all four of the gospel writers talk about John before we get to Jesus. And the thing that we need to understand is there's no New Testament without the Old Testament. There's no gospel without the law. Often today, we, we, in our fear of how we will be perceived by others, we want to present a gospel of love, a gospel of grace, a gospel of truth. Those are all good things and right things, but we are reluctant to present the requirements or the law what God actually requires of us. But in all four Gospels, John is placed ahead of Jesus to indicate that in Jesus, all of the Old Testament, all of the law is actually fulfilled. Jesus does not obliterate it. He doesn't displace it. He fulfills it. And so we need to actually see in Jesus what Matthew wants, or in John, what Matthew wants us to see. And John comes with an urgent message. And this is the really the, the summation of the law in the Old Testament is this message, repent in verse 2. Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is not just a, a law message for the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus repeats this message over and over again. Jesus calls people to repent and turn to the kingdom of heaven. The other writers of the New Testament, in the book of Acts, um, we see Paul and Peter preaching the same message, repent and turn to God. This is not just an Old Testament thing. This is a now thing. In order for us to give people the full reality of humanity under God, we have to begin with our need to repent. Unless we know that there is something that we need to repent of, God's grace and his love means nothing. 
If there is no sin to overcome, if there's no uh, brokenness to be healed, if there's no dysfunction and, and disruption from sin in our life, then there's no need for love. The, God's love and his grace are meaningless without our need for repentance and turning to God. In a sense, what John is saying is emphatically turn your lives around because here comes the kingdom of heaven. John was pleading with people to change direction in their life. This was an urgent call of his saying, the kingdom of God is imminent and you need to turn your life around, not because of the kingdom, but, but because the kingdom is coming, because God's justice is coming, because God's judgment of all things is coming. And so now take the opportunity, turn your life around. And so in chapter three, we see in John, the living, breathing representation of the law. We see in him the holiness and fire of God, which requires us to turn from sin and live a different kind of life. Through John, that's what we see. Through Jesus, we see the, the gospel, the love and grace that we need in order to be able to turn from God. But in John, we see the fire of God, the judgment of God, and our necessity to repent and turn direction. Repentance must come first in our life before grace. Repentance must come in our life. We, we can't walk into the kingdom life that Jesus lays out for us without repentance, without turning direction. In secular Greek, that word for repent literally means a mental change of mind or an emotional regret. So in secular Greek around Matthew's time and still today, it doesn't carry everything that is carried with it from a biblical sense. The Greek word is translating the Hebrew word shove, <laughs> which means to come back or to turn around. This word repent is, is largely um, confusing for many of us today, so I just want to give it some further definition. Repentance is not primarily an emotional uh, response. Repentance is not just primarily feeling bad about something. John Albert Brodus, who was a grammarian, and he was one of the founders and presidents of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He lived back in the late 1800s. He said this, repent is the worst translation in the New Testament. For in English, the word repent means insipidity and literally to be sorry. So often what we've understood repentance to be is just, oh, I'm sorry, God. And our, our repentance often stays at that level where we feel bad about something, we feel uh, sorry about something, and so our repentance is, God, I'm sorry for doing that. But that's actually not the picture fully of biblical repentance. Repentance, biblically, that, that word used in Scripture is metanoial in the Greek, and it means to change one's life. Literally, based on a complete change of, get this, attitude and thought concerning sin and righteousness. It means to change one's views, opinion, 
and purpose. So repentance is not just being sorry about something. Repentance is not just being sorry about your sin or being sorry that you were caught in sin. Repentance is not just an emotional feeling, you know, when the worship is really great and there's an altar call at church, repentance is not that. It's actually a complete change of your attitude and your thinking. Dallas Willard said, repentance is changing the way you think about your thinking. It's changing your opinion of what's right what's sinful or righteous, not based on your interpretation, but based on God's. And it's not only that, it's changing how your thinking determines how you live. It's actually living a different way. So repentance biblically must be followed by living a different way. Repentance cannot remain in the realm of just, I'm God, I'm sorry for that. And then moving on with your life, repentance requires a turning of direction. It requires a new way to think about and process your whole life, what you value, what is most important, what takes primacy in your life. It's changing your opinion about things and your conduct. This is what repentance means. Uh, said another way, you could say within it, uh, one must change one's mind and heart about what is important in life and then change one's outward life accordingly. This is biblical repentance. This is what John the Baptist is calling Israel to as he's crying out in the desert, urgently saying, repent. He's saying, change your mind and your heart about what's important in your life because the kingdom of heaven is near. So change your mind and your heart about what's important, about what's driving your life, about what's driving your values, about how you're driven by your desires and you're driven by your flesh and you're driven by your narcissism and you're driven by your desire for yourself to be God of your universe and Lord of your own domain and kingdom. Change your mind and your heart about what's important to you, then change your life accordingly. And this is where John the Baptist marries repentance and confession with baptism. He's calling people to abandon, to abandon all that is despicable because the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the biblical framework for repentance. And this flies in the face often of what our, our current experience of repentance has been like. And it's, it, it contrasts what, what I grew up believing repentance was and how I practiced it. Matthew's description of John the Baptist is a living example. John is a living example of repentance, what repentance looks like. Look at how he describes him. This is not an accident. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over Jordan, the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear him. Matthew is saying, look, this is John living this an example. John was living what he was preaching. He was living a set apart, a holy life. He was living a life of dependency on God, total trust in God for not only his, his 
desires, but his needs, his eating needs and his clothing needs. John was unaffected by the pressures of the city life. He was unaffected by the social pressures and the expectations of culture around him. John's life wasn't shaped and formed by the values of popular culture in his day. John was set apart and Matthew saying, look, I'm giving you this little biopic view of John so you can see what being repentant and set apart looks like in action. And then John says, not only repent, but he calls people to confess their sins. It says in verse six, when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. What we need to understand about this is John's confession, this scene here is not a private, just between me and God kind of confession. In our, in our modern Western church culture, we've made everything just, I want to deal with God internally about it. This is a private matter be- between God and I, and we've, we've reduced confession to this uh, independent, private, concealed, secret matter of our heart to God, but that's not the confession that John is inviting people into. John is inviting them into a public Uh, confession and admonition of their sin. John is inviting people to step out into the light. He's not giving them the opportunity to stay hidden in darkness. He's not giving them the opportunity to conceal what's really happening on the inside. He's calling them in a public way to bring out into the open what's actually taking place in the private areas of their life. That word confess literally means to publicly admit something, usually a wrong of some kind. It's important to see, Bruner says this, it's important to see in Matthew 3, 6 that the remedy for sin is not denying sin's presence or explaining it away, but openly admitting it. We are free from sin only when we face it when we disown it by owning up to it. Sin is remitted where sin is admitted. Sin is remitted where sin is admitted. I wanna challenge you with this. This is gonna be a hard thing for some of you. Maybe some of you are offended by me even suggesting this. But this notion of repentance just being feeling sorry for yourself really, but being sorry about what you did and then privately just, you know, uh, talking to God about it is not a biblical view of repentance and confession. Repentance requires that we change the way we think about our thinking, that our opinions and our values and our choices change, our living change. And confession requires that we actually bring out into the open into the light, the things that are taking place in darkness and in secrecy. Some of you have things buried in your life that you've never told anyone, whether it's sins done against you or sins that you've committed, things that have been committed against you or that you have been the one committing and you've never actually brought them into the light and those things are still crippling you. Those things are holding you in bondage. Maybe they're things that you are every day 
repenting of again and again, every day saying, God, I'm sorry for this, I'm sorry for that, every day feeling the shame and condemnation that comes with that. Can I tell you what John is saying is this, this needs to be brought out into the light. Confession needs to be brought out into the light. In 1 John, the other John, the Apostle John, 1, 5 to 10 says this, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth, but if we are living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John continues in verse eight, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. I want to tell you there's a spiritual principle behind this that is so important for us to understand. And this first principle is that we will have no freedom over that which we will not admit. You will never gain freedom or walk in the freedom of Christ over something that you will not admit to over a sin that you keep bound in secrecy and in hiding. Look, I'm not saying that you need to go to the first person you see and just give them a full, you know, a, a barfing out of everything you've ever done. You, you need to pray and ask God to show you, to point out to you someone you can trust and then begin the process of developing a relationship of trust with them, testing that. This needs to be done with somebody you trust, not from a megaphone. Don't start uh, by posting this on Facebook or Instagram or don't, don't do a story or a TikTok about this. You need to actually begin with someone you can trust, but you need to begin to bring your whole life into the light. You will never have freedom over something that you will not admit. And also, you will never have authority spiritually over something you're not walking in victory in. You will never be able to walk in authority over the things or teach in authority or pass on to your friends, your family, your kids, your spouse. Your, you'll never be able to walk in spiritual authority if you're not walking in victory in those areas. John is calling, urgently calling Israel to repentance and confession. Is this a marker in your life? Would this kind of repentance and confession characterize your life? If not, there's no better time to begin than now. If you need to call me or better yet, email me at the church, andrew at mp.church or email Pastor Brenda if you're a woman. We, we don't do personal one-on-one -on -one counseling with the opposite sex for obvious reasons. You can email Pastor Brenda uh, by just emailing brenda at mp.church. If this doesn't characterize your spiritual life, then I want to challenge you to begin this week by bringing things out into the open. Matthew continues in verse 7, but when he saw 
uh, John, many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee the coming wrath. Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to one another, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. The Pharisees, we we need to understand this. We're so disconnected from this part of the reality of first century life, Matthew's life, it's hard for us to really grasp what is going on here. But the Pharisees in modern day context would be cons- uh, sort of compared to conservatives who are pushing the return to the scriptures in society and in culture who are pious and, and, and leaning toward living a holy life and, and bringing all of society under the scriptures. They're passionate and zealous for the scriptures, but, but zealous to the point of legalism where they hold up the scriptures in a dysfunctional and legalistic way. And the Sadducees are like liberals. They're the progressives who are looking to make scripture form and fit within society and society's values. They're they're not looking for repentance in the way that John is talking about it. They're actually looking to shape scripture in a new way under the, the, uh, the weights and the pressures and the values of society. And we need to see what Matthew is pointing out here is not a mistake again, and it's not just for the first century Jews. We need to see today the Pharisees and the Sadducees represent us. They represent Bible-believing followers of Scripture. The Pharisees and Sadducees represent the church as a whole, and we need to grasp this and understand it. Bruner says it this way, John's message now tells us that the major problem of the church is the church. As we see later in the teaching of Jesus too, the chief problems of the people of God were not the Roman occupation, nor the external political, economic, or social threats. The problem of the church is the church. We need to see ourselves in the Pharisees and Sadducees, and we need to guard ourselves against in pride, believing that we alone represent the perfect middle between the two. We need to guard against thinking that we are free from the influence of either group. So here's my question to you as you reflect on this. If you were humble and willing for God to examine your heart and your life right now, toward which group would your heart be pulled? Toward which group would your heart be pulled? The religious pietists who in a dysfunctional way are holding scripture in a way that's actually bringing legalism and 
resulting in pride in the way that they live, pride in how they view life, pride in so many religious ways or the liberal, progressive, who wants scripture to conform to what's now modern and what is now acceptable and now what is culturally relevant. Bruner says again, how we think of ourselves. However, we think of ourselves. Let me start that again so that you can understand. However, we think of ourselves. (laughs) That's better. We cannot easily escape being members of one of the two major problem groups perennially in the people of God. It is not fair for any of us to say, thank heaven, I'm a member of the middle. That's always a superior group. We must learn to read the words Pharisees and Sadducees and see ourselves, or we will miss half of Matthew. So John the Baptist says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live. Again, repentance is proved by how we live, that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. We see here a few things that John is just, uh, you know, he's, he's aiming at a few things here. We have questions here, and we're not going to get into this because this is kind of a bigger overview, but we have questions here. John is beginning to poke at questions of eternal security, of uh, our view of being safe within the kingdom of God. Of, and I would say today there is, there is a, a dysfunction in our Western church, in our soteriology of how we view salvation, that, that it is you know, something that we can uh, intellectually agree uh, with Jesus about that he is the way, the truth, and the life, but, but have it not require anything in our living that we gain access to heaven, but that access does not have to impact any other part of our life that is an exchange of sort of doctrine and acknowledgement intellectually of God, but not a living out. We need to be careful, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were, they were relying on their uh, ethnic heritage as children of Abraham. They were relying on their place within as a security measure. That place from within um, gave them a license to live in an ungodly way in their own minds. And John is saying, you've got to be careful. That pedigree that you have doesn't mean a thing, and we see this tension in Scripture all over the place. That on one hand, we're saved by grace, and we're saved by grace when we believed. There's nothing we can do to earn it; it's a gift from God. And on the other hand, we're we're told by Jesus in Revelation that He who endures to the end will be saved. We're told that how we live matters, and we're told that you know. Um, our, our salvation needs to be evident in the choices we make and how we live, that faith is not just an intellectual thing, that belief is not just an intellectual thing, but they actually need to be expressed in our life and how we live and think and what we do and what we say. So there's this great tension in Scripture that we have to 
wrestle with. And John says, you know, who warned you to flee the coming wrath of God? And we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. The preeminent text in the scripture where God describes his own character and attributes to Moses in Exodus 34 says this, then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. This is God describing himself. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Hold on there. In one sense, we have great news. I'm slow, but then in another sense, God is admitting that he has anger, not anger issues, not anger management issues, but that he does get angry. So yes, he's slow to anger, but he still does get angry. So that's amazing and terrifying all in the same point. That Hebrew word for slow to anger literally means long in the nostrils. You know, like when that person who's especially grating on you, maybe it's happening even now, maybe I am, um, is grating on you and you, you close your mouth, you purse your lips and you take that long deep breath from your nose like I, I, I can't handle this right now. This is what it's talking about in terms of God being slow to anger. It's long in the nostrils, God's wrath is mentioned in the scriptures more than 600 times. It's a real thing. And if we're going to hear and receive the gospel of Jesus, the living gospel of Jesus, we need to understand the fire of God, the law and the fire of God. John Stott says this about God's anger and his wrath, his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. John Mark Comer in his book, God Has a Name, says this, God doesn't have a temper. He's not volatile or edgy or spasmodic. He doesn't fly off the handle or slam the door and storm out of the house in the God version of a temper tantrum. God's anger isn't expressed the way that yours and I's anger is. Frederick Bruner says the wrath of God is not the irritability of God. Our anger is often a provoking of negative emotions. It's when we don't get what we want or when we don't get what we thought we wanted or when someone does something to interrupt our control in our life, when someone does something to undermine our desire, we get angry and it is fueled out of an irritability and a frustration and it boils over in expressions of temper and losing our cool and control, but the wrath of God is not the irritability of God. It's the love of God in friction with injustice. It's the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with manifest selfishness. God's anger is not directed toward you. His anger is directed towards sin and evil and the consequences of sin and evil. It's only a good God that would discipline his children. God disciplines out of love. He's slow to anger. 
But we must not and we cannot forget that one day God will bring to judgment and justice all things. John continues and he says in Matthew 3, 11 to 12, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming who's greater than I am. So much greater, I'm not worthy to even be a slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat. Listen to how he's describing Jesus, the Messiah. He's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. John is describing the Messiah, Jesus, as both Savior and Judge. He's both grace and truth together. The reason that Matthew is painting this picture of John the Baptist, the living, breathing, walking example of the law and the holiness and the fire of God, the separated, out-of-this-world part of God before the gospel of Jesus is so that the gospel means something for you and for me. Jesus is not the flannel graph Jesus, the white skinned, blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus that you might have grown up with in Sunday school class. Jesus is grace and truth. He's compassion and mercy. But Jesus, we have to remember, will bring the judgment of God to the whole universe. Not because he's angry with you, but he is furious with sin and what it's done to his good creation. Listen to what Paul says about Jesus and judgment. 1 Corinthians 3, on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show, I want you to get this, on the judgment day, Paul is talking about Christians here. He's not talking about a judgment here for non-Christians or non-followers of Jesus. He's talking about followers of Jesus. Fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through walls, of flame. 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is Paul also. For we must all, he's talking to Christians, stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. The writer of Hebrews says this, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe for our God. Listen to this. Our God is a devouring fire. Later on in Hebrews or earlier in Hebrews 10, 29 to 31, the writer of Hebrews says this. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God, meaning Jesus, and have treated the blood of the covenant, what he did for us on the cross, which made us holy as if it were common and unholy. 
the people who don't really think they need to be saved from anything, the people who constantly are, are justifying their actions, who are diminishing their sin and their actions, the people who don't really think that sin is really sin in God's eyes and who think that because God is love, then sin really isn't a thing, that it has no impact or no effect on their lives. Paul is, or the writer of Hebrews is saying, they have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy on us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said, the Lord, the Lord will judge his own people. It's a terrible thing, listen to the writer of Hebrews, a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Every gospel writer includes John the Baptist and his call to repentance and confession and baptism. His call to change the direction of their lives. Jesus does not lower the bar of God's expectations for your life and my life. In fact, we'll see in the Sermon on the Mount, he raises it. Grace doesn't lower the bar. Grace is actually the only means by which we can enter into life with God. I gave you this description before, but grace is God acting in our life in ways we don't deserve through salvation, but in many ways. God acting in our life in ways we don't deserve with power we do not have. Grace doesn't lower the bar, it raises it. And it is only grace that gives us the ability to walk into the with Jesus life. So John is saying, look, God is slow to anger, but there is wrath for God. He must bring injustice to justice. John is saying, turn direction now before it's too late. Dallas Willard says this, and this rocked me the first time that I heard it. Asking, someone was asking about spiritual disciplines and, you know, the grace works sort of thing. And like, well, then who can really be saved? The same question the disciples asked. And Dallas Willard said this, God will permit everyone into heaven who in his considered opinion can stand it. So God is the one He's the only one who's qualified to make that decision. But you have to think, Dallas Willard continues, that the fires of heaven may be hotter than the fires of hell. I want you to think about that. In these passages we've just read, we've read that passing into the kingdom of heaven is a passing through fire. We've read that our God is a consuming fire. Could it be that the fires of heaven are hotter than the fires of hell? Could it be that the reality is hell doesn't require much of your life, but God's kingdom requires you to die to yourself, to give up your life, to give up your right to live as ruler of your own kingdom? The fires of heaven are hotter than the fires of hell. 
The requirement to enter into the kingdom of God is not just uh, rifling off a prayer one time at camp and then going on and living the way you want. The requirement is to bring your whole life under the lordship of Christ, to walk in repentance and confession and baptism to do the things that God requires us to do, empowered by the grace that he alone can give us to do them. Heaven will require a a thorough burning up of the flesh and everything that is unworthy of God's presence. My question for you is if you have no real desire right now to live for God now, if you have no real desire to change direction and live a different way, if you have no real desire to, to bring your flesh under the cross of Christ, to die to yourself, to crucify yourself, then why would you want to live for eternity in a situation where that will be reality, where your very flesh will be ultimately and finally crucified, being brought into perfection in the presence of God. If you're not desiring that now, why would you desire that later? So here's a few questions we can ask as we just land the plane here, talking about the law and the fire of God before we get to Jesus as the living gospel. I want you to ask this question. If you're honest today, which direction are you pulled in your heart toward that of a Pharisee or a Sadducee? I want you to ask, are you actually walking in biblical repentance as evidenced in how you think and what you choose and how you live? I want you to ask the question, am I walking in open confession with God or others? Am I a walking closet of secrecy, of hiddenness? And lastly, I want you to ask, how do you respond to God's reality of being a consuming fire? What does that mean for you today? Do you want the with Jesus life, or are you determined to live life on your own footing and merit? This is what Matthew brings us to consider uh, this sobering reality of the law and the fire of God. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus, the living gospel, where law meets gospel. And in that, we see the fullness of life that God has set out for us. Today is not too late. Like Matthew's urging to the people in Israel around him, I'm urging you to repent Turn from your sin. Turn from living for yourself. Repent, confess your sin, and begin to live under the rule and leadership of God. Let's pray together. Father, we need your grace at work in our life. We need your mercy. We recognize that without you, it is impossible to please God. Jesus, we are so grateful today for what you did on the cross. We're sorry for the ways that we diminish and minimize it in. We're sorry for the ways that we excuse our behavior and our thinking and our sin and how we minimize it and how we 
undermine your call on our life to be set apart and holy, to live righteously before you. I just ask, Father, for everyone under the sound of my voice that you would begin to teach them what true repentance looks like, that you would give them the courage to step into a confessional life, that you would uh, remind them of or place someone in their life that they can trust, who they can begin to bring their whole life out into the light with. God, teach us to live the way that you've called us to live in the life that we have right now. In Jesus' name, amen.